So you have how many cats do you have? I have one and my wife has one, is how we work it. Oh, you guys have like your preferences? Or your well, preferred yeah. Kids. I mean, her cat is uh, literally a demon, and my cat is the best <laughs> cat in the world, so it's easy to tell them apart. That's hilarious. Yeah. We have two dogs, and my wife, the little one is more attached to my wife, and the bigger one is more attached to me. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have a similar thing going. The, the little one is the one that's the most mischievous. Well, they, he's got to be. Yeah. yeah gotta learn the wise. Yep. Absolute terror sometimes. <laughs> Today we are joined by a legend in the Mythos gaming world. He has designed, written, or co-authored more than 70 role-playing games and supplements, including Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, Trail of Cthulhu, and the very cool Knight's Black Agents. He has written countless articles and essays, and even several of crafting children's books. His most recent Lovecraftian game, The Fall of Delta Green, won a Golden Any Award this year for Best Setting, and his recently released annotated King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers has received much acclaim from prominent critics and personalities within the Lovecraft circles. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Kenneth Height. How's it going, Kenneth? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I wanted to start with uh, your background and how you started in gaming. Um, what was what were your favorite games growing up, and which ones uh, influenced you the most? Well, I mean, I started out. We were a, a family game family. I mean, Santa would bring us board games. That's the kind of game family we were. And so, uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, came out, and I was sort of vaguely aware of it because I think uh, John M. Ford was writing reviews of it for Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. So I knew that there was this thing out there. My uh, my friend Steve uh, showed up with a copy of the uh, AD&D Monster Manual, which was the first one of the books I ever saw. And I borrowed it from him basically all summer, one summer, and, and spent it sort of making up monsters and, and doing things. And that was maybe the same summer, maybe it was the summer after I discovered H.P. Lovecraft just by reading uh, The Color Out of Space by accident, and it scared me nearly to death. Um, and so... I was sort of aware of both of them in, in the late 70s. And then once we got back to school, we started up a Dungeons & Dragons campaign out of the Blue Book and using the monsters from the Monster Manual. And then the Player's Handbook came out, and so we sort of changed the campaign over to AD&D. We had a gigantic uh, D&D uh, uh, camp, a game that sort of drew in people from all over uh, the high school and, and you know, got... Uh, sort of ridiculous and out of control the way that all Dungeons and Dragons campaigns do. Um, I played Traveler in that period. Um, Santa brought me Top Secret one year, so that was great fun. And then in 1981, uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, appeared. And I, having by that time read more Lovecraft and really, really, really uh, blew my mind, I immediately bought Call of Cthulhu and I saw it on the shelf of the game store. I like to say and no one can say different, that I'm the first person to buy it in Oklahoma. And uh, I r- ran it like that night with my best friend, Kevin, who died um, in uh, the Corbett house. <laughs> the character died, right? <laughs> yeah, let, let's say that. Let's yeah. say his character died. Um, <laughs> and so he immediately you know, uh, uh, rolled up another one, and, and we started going. And then I ran it for another friend of mine with an adventure I'd sort of made up about Deep Ones. And his character died. And so we were like, yes, this is the best thing ever. So I basically ran Call of Cthulhu 
I want to say nonstop, but let's say nonstop for the next eight years until I uh, went away to uh, Chicago uh, for uh, grad school. And I ran it uh, for my old high school grew. I ran it for my new friends in college. I ran, I think I had three different campaigns going at one time. Uh, I was so smitten and then wrapped most of them up with a big finale uh, running Spawn of Azathoth. And I joined two of my campaigns together. Uh, and so their characters were, each group of characters was playing Spawn of Azathoth, but from a different direction. And they met on the plateau of Lang or Tsang or wherever the, the big fight happens at the end. And uh, that was the sort of ultimate finale of, of, of my game. And uh, that was hugely, uh, I mean, like you say, influential in that it taught me that game, da- game balance is an artifact of setting um, and you don't need it to have fun. And in fact, it gets very much in the way of fun uh, because if you're worried about balance, you're not worried about anything else that actually uh, creates uh, entertainment or drama or uh, emotion at the table. So that, I mean, Call of Cthulhu was and remains a giant influence on me. Um, Dungeons and Dragons still does, obviously. The Dungeon Master's Guide contains technology and techniques uh, for uh, impro- improvising games and making them happen at a moment's notice uh, that people are still not using for some reason. Um, and uh, in that general space, I, I think I was probably somewhat influenced by uh, Top Secret if uh, Knights Black Agents can be seen as an heir to that glorious tradition of busting in a door and machine gunning everyone. Um, and that's, that was a big influence on me, although less, less of a rules way, because by the time I was really playing it, I was comparing it unfavorably to Call of Cthulhu. And so that, I guess it influenced me by teaching me that just having percentile dice was not enough. Um, that you also had to have Sandy Peterson's immense genius. And that sort of started me down the road to knowing a good game from a bad game, which is, I guess, what put me here. That's awesome. So what what eventually made you decide that you wanted to do this for a living as opposed to just uh, being a casual or a very involved gamer? Right. Um, One of the players in my Call of Cthulhu game in high school got a job at Iron Crown Enterprises, which was at the time a big role-playing game company. And they had Rollmaster, in fact. There was their publisher. And um, the Middle Earth license, so they were riding high. And he got a playtest uh, copy of the first edition of Nephilim, uh, the the Chaosium English version of the French role-playing game. And he said, gosh, who do I know who can respond intelligently to this game about sorcery and black magic and past lives and historical conspiracy? Oh, I know. My, the, uh, Ken Hyde, who used to run all of that stuff for us in Call of Cthulhu. So he sends me uh, that playtest document, and I sent Chaosium about 11,000 words of back sass. And then I got an email from, you know, Greg Stafford. So I basically got an email from the God's Plane saying, uh, we're going to use your uh, comments in the book. Uh, here's we're going to pay you for those. What's the next book you want to write for us? Whoa. And when Greg Stafford asks you to write a book, the answer is not no. The answer is yes or soon. <laughs> so I said, I'll write the Secret Societies book. And at basically the same time, myself and my and a couple of people from my grad school game group had sold a proposal to Steve Jackson games to do a book of alternate histories, which became GURPS alternate earths. So I basically had two book contracts roughly at the same time. And I sort of kept that going. And eventually my wife decided she would rather have a happy game designer husband 
than a um, uh, 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 and actually uh, earning his, his his way through life, but irritated insurance uh, company uh, employee husband. So uh, she said, why don't you just do this full time? Uh, people seem to like it. And uh, to her very great credit, has never once looked back from that perhaps irrational decision. So would you say that was your your big end to the, the game design world, those two contracts? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's certainly what taught me that I could pay for my uh, my hobby that way and get, um, uh, I mean, I already had, uh, you know, uh, badges from Chaosium because uh, when, Call of, when Gen Con was in Wisconsin, was in Milwaukee, and I was in Chicago, it was a $20 train ride to get there. Chaosium, if you uh, demoed games for them or ran events, they would put you in a hotel room, they would give you a badge, and they would feed you terrible pizza once a day. So your only expenses were that train ticket and alcohol. And so I had an exhibitor badge from uh, from Chaosium, and so I could go anywhere and go to you know industry parties and meet people. And I think it was on that badge that I that I met Robin Laws. Uh, and it was either right before or right after my first books had been published. So he was the big pro and I was the fanboy. Um, and I was, and that's why Steve Jackson couldn't dodge me when I would go up to him and say, Hey, how about that alternate worlds proposal? You ever look at that? Hey, Steve. Hey. So eventually just to shut me up, he did. And it turned out he liked it. So that was a good thing for everyone. But I, I think that getting those two, those two deals basically told me I could pay for the hobby. And then, just it became so much better. I don't want to say easier, but so much better. Uh, uh, if I wrote more of them, um, my my wife is not wrong that I, that I'm a happier person if I'm writing rather than uh, doing geographical data for an insurance company. I think that that's indisputable, and so uh, it was it was sort of that realization that the market existed. And then a lack of, uh, of 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 smarts about doing something better with my life that that left me here. So you you mentioned that uh, that you'd read Lovecraft when you were fairly young. What was it about Lovecraft and Lovecraftian lore that uh, that scratched that itch for you? I mean, the f- first book that I the first one that I read was The Color Out of Space, and I read that. I mean, which to begin with is a literally perfect story. It's up there with The Willows and maybe three other stories as a perfect weird tale. So just it was it's sheer greatness impressed me but i read it in an anthology of more conventional science fiction uh by uh assembled by graf conklin i want to say uh adventures in space and time or something like that so it's all stories out of astounding and amazing so it's all jut jawed uh blue-eyed blonde earthmen of all races and colors uh, uh battling aliens and beating them up And of course, I'm 11 and I think this is great. This is the greatest thing in the world. Battle aliens, beat them up. And then the color out of space hits. And it's the opposite in every way of that story. And just the sheer amazement, the surprise, it really got me. Um, And the, you know, the the, the whole portrait of the sort of, no, when you go outside, everything's going to be a million times worse and more dangerous. And you can't even understand it is is how bad it's going to be. That insight I mean, first of all, it struck me as self-evidently true once you put it that way. And then as I read uh, the other stories, and I read Call of Cthulhu, and I read Shadow of Rinsmith, and I read Rats of the Walls, it was just on top of the just sheer uh, writerly ability to draw you into a scene and to paint these sort of unimaginable horrors just enough so you could imagine them, there was the cosmic scope. There's the fact that this thing 
could extend throughout all of time and uh, was extending throughout all of time, that there was nothing safe. It was just a very, very powerful conception. I mean, so it was, it was everything about Lovecraft that gets you when you're a teenager, you know, the, the cosmicism and the goo and the weird details to memorize. But I, I think that what sort of stuck with me was the real project that Lovecraft was trying to present the notion of really trying to think about alienness and what does that mean in all of its respects. And I think that that sort of resonated with me as a, as a science fiction fan and then has stayed as, you know, you get older and look around at the world and you say, well, we barely understand what's going on now, much less what's actually going to go on if we ever, you know, can look up for two seconds. So do you think that 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 sort of cosmic feeling has, has continued in, in Cthulhu writing that's, that's available now? I mean, it's, it seems like every time I turn around, there's another Cthulhu related project out there. Some of them more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of the more faithful to the, the source material than others has, do you think that's changed over the years? I mean, obviously, even when Lovecraft was writing, I mean, there were people who were writing sort of quotidian tales of the mythos, um, or stories that are sort of cosmic. August Erleth was, um, you know, writing when Lovecraft was alive and getting Lovecraft sign off on stuff. So the tendency to, uh, merely make the mythos the secret history of all black magic, which is awesome enough, by the way, uh, was ongoing during his lifetime. And I think a lot of people, re you know, recoil, as Lovecraft knew that they would, from the implication that the outside is inimical and hostile and irrational and will destroy us. I think that there's a lot of people who are like, well, yeah, maybe in 1925, you know, everyone would be scared of lobster men, but if I saw a lobster man, I'd love it. And I, I think that we can't know until we actually see lobster men what the actual human response is going to be. I mean, traditionally, the human response to something that isn't human is to kill it. So I think Lovecraft, again, may may not have been entirely wrong. Um, and I think that the best of the stuff still draws from that cosmic well. And there's plenty of fun and enjoyable things that attempt to uh, detour in Lovecraft or, or reverse it for uh, either a political point um, Shoggoths in Bloom is a terrific story from the Shoggoths point of view, which of course is something that Lovecraft would never have countenanced. Um, but plenty of other stories, uh, just use it as a backdrop for an adventure universe, which again, I also grew up loving the hell out of Conan the Barbarian. So I'm not going to, uh, point fingers and say A is better than B, but A is definitely more cosmic. And I think true to the sort of core Lovecraftian concepts than B. But, you know, one of the many wonderful things about the Cthulhu mythos is that it's a big it's a big church. Everyone comes in for their own crazy reasons and, and leaves an offering. And a lot more of those offerings um, uh, are enjoyable than you'd think. And every now and again, you get a Ramsey Campbell or a, or a John Langan who actually leaves a really impressive offering that uh, that sort of scares you in the old way. Yeah, I've always said that if we ever if we ever master space travel and encounter aliens are. The second question after after what does it look like will be how does it taste? Yeah. So uh, I think those lobster men have more to fear. Yeah, if, if we can get water to boil on Pluto, then they are down. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, on this on this podcast, uh, we played a game of Delta Green, the Arc Green publishing version. Mm -hmm. A lot of our listeners are familiar with that version of the game, and I understand that you work closely with uh, Shane Ivy from Arc Dream for when you were uh, writing The Fall of Delta Green. Yeah. How does The Fall of Delta Green differ from the Arc Dream Delta Green game? I mean, I was also working with Shane and Greg and the others when 
we were doing Delta Green, and I wrote the unnatural chapter in that book, which became the basis for the unnatural chapter in Fall of Delta Green. So they are they are definitely, you know, brothers, and one of them is half invisible on a hilltop, and the other one is just a goatee looking guy who steals library books. But uh, the Fall of Delta Green, uh, to begin with, uses the gumshoe engine, which is the uh, the system that drives Trail of Cthulhu and Knights Black Agents and, and many other fine games from Pelgrane Press. Uh, because the goal was to expand the Delta Green universe out to a different rule set. Uh, everyone grew up playing Delta Green in the old Call of Cthulhu system, and then uh, Greg and Shane and the others were moving it into its own system. And so the next thought was, what's the other system that people like playing Cthulhu in? And the answer was Gumshoe, uh, which is nice. And so they wanted something that would get people to kick into the Kickstarter, that would be an attractive stretch, stretch goal, that would be interesting, that would stand on its own and actually expand the line. So rather than just do a translation of Delta Green into Gumshoe, where the two lines would cannibalize each other, uh, I think Dennis had the bright idea of saying, how about if uh, you do uh, a historical Delta Green, and then you can have that decade, and we'll do modern day Delta Green, and are they'll reinforce each other the two lines and they offered me the 1950s as the setting and i countered with the 1960s uh, mostly because it has an ending um the the story of delta green very much ends in a way in 1970 when they're the the uh, secret government agency is disbanded and it becomes a conspiracy instead and so that sort of tale of hubris and overreach and destruction is the story of the government in the 1960s writ writ small and so i thought that will make a great theme for the book and so it'll hang together uh and i won't have to sort of tease out you know what is 50s or what is whatever because the 60s first of all everyone knows it second of all uh it's got that very very strong backstory that is helpfully being replicated uh in indochina during that same decade so i just have to sort of keep batting back and forth between those and, and the and the book almost sort of structures itself. It doesn't quite write itself, but that's the that's the goal. So it's gumshoe, uh, Delta Green, when Delta Green is a legitimate agency, if a deniable one, set in the 1960s. And those are the those are the differences between fall uh, of Delta Green and uh, the Delta Green RPG. So uh, on the Arc Dream Handler's Guide for Delta Green, the role-playing game, there's a, a huge chapter, probably the biggest chapter in the book, has some historical timelines, including events from the 1960s and how they tie to Delta Green. Um, so does the fall of Delta Green follow the same historical timeline as that book? Yeah, it's set in the Delta Green universe. It's not an alternate universe or a parallel track. It's the same universe. And a lot of those events uh, came out of my first draft and a lot of the things that they already had that you know were already part of Delta Green continuity, I put into my book. So if you... Uh, remember, there's a, 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 a weird a remote viewing group called, I think, the Outlook Group that's in, uh, maybe it's in Countdown, and they get busted up and they fail to predict the uh, Bay of Pigs. And so I said, well, there we go. That's a 60s thing. And so I expanded it to make it a, a sort of a mini scenario seed, a scenario structure, and put it into the book. And so uh, as, I think, uh, Operation Libretto. And then as uh, they then saw that in the manuscript and said, now we can port that back into the handler's guide as part of the timeline. So it was really sort of a, a, you know, um, 
a symbiotic process. You know, I would come up with something based on what they'd come up with, and then they would change the the new book based on what I'd come up with. So it was very, it wasn't a, a I mean, we didn't sit around a, a table and hash it out over cups of coffee. It was sort of a slow symbiosis where people would send giant um, unedited drafts of things back and forth, but it was still very collaborative in that sense. You, I, I heard an interview uh, that you had about the fall of Delta Green where you mentioned something uh, in the lines of that in the 60s were full of shenanigans and that some of the stuff that you had to made up was sometimes less crazy than the stuff that you had to look up from the 1960s. Is that also partially why you chose the setting? Yeah, I mean, the, the 1950s are, are great and good and there could be a magnificent 1950s Delta Green written um, in that sort of Eisenhower crew cut, uh, shooting Nazis and uh, taking tomes type way. But stories are more interesting when they're stories about everything coming apart. And uh, those 1960s are very much when the old order came apart and had to sort of reinvent itself. And the military intelligence community came up with a lot of insane ideas uh, from uh, artificial rain clouds over Vietnam to studying black magic and voodoo uh, as part of MK Ultra, uh, and choosing the University of South Carolina for some reason, go, go fighting palmettos, I guess. But um, there's all kinds of weird things that happen in the 1960s, it, and that's even before you get out into the 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 yippies trying to levitate the Pentagon to exorcise the demon that lives in it. Um, all of those things are part of the 1960s and, and very much woven into that that decade, and so. Yeah, that's that's a big reason I wanted the 1960s. It, you know, at the very least, the the art would look weirder um, and more colorful and strange because it could use uh, strange 60s aesthetics and be about strange 60s aesthetics as well. Very cool. Um, so you mentioned the fall of Delta Green uses the gumshoe system, uh, which is used in, in Trail of Cthulhu as well, right? Is that yeah? Uh, what for those who don't know what the gumshoe system is? What what is the gumshoe system, and how did the name come about? Uh, the name came about because it is basically optimizing uh, for investigative play. Uh, and if you recall, way back in the very very first Call of Cthulhu book, they say structure your your scenario like a mystery, and uh, as you penetrate the mystery, you will uncover greater horrible truths that will lead to more great horrible truths, and that has been how. Call of Cthulhu scenarios have been structured since the jump is as mystery stories. And so uh, the gumshoe system came about because at many tables and in many cases, if the GM did not structure the mystery correctly or the scenario writer did not structure the mystery correctly, you would hit a point where you need to make a spot hidden role or a library use role or some kind of role. And if you failed it, you couldn't move forward in the story because you had to find the diary that said there's bad doings out at the old mill. And if you don't find the diary, you never hear about the old mill. So the GM, the keeper, would have to sort of vamp and come up with a different way to get you to the old mill so that the rest of the story can happen. Well, Robin said, let's divide die rolls then into two possibilities. One, a possibility where failure makes the game worse in that it stops it, and that's the investigative rolls. So in Gumshoe... You don't have to roll for investigative roles. You automatically get the clues because you're playing investigators. You're playing the kind of people who could find an old diary. You're playing the kind of people who can decipher the text or spot the footprint or whatever it is because that's what the story is about. The story is not, gosh, I hope Sherlock Holmes finds the clue. Uh, the story is, 
what will Sherlock Holmes do with the clues that he has found? How does he put that together to solve the mystery? That's what mysteries are actually about. You know, on um, uh, on CSI, they, they don't wave their lumen all around and then say, well, guess we missed the fingerprints. That's not what happens. So in a game that is intended to evoke mystery solving, uh, Robin thought it makes sense to simply let the mystery solving uh, be the thing that the players do and the clue finding happen automatically. So that's the, the main difference of gumshoe. And you can do that in any game, I guess, is just, you know, automatic successes on your on your investigative roles if you've got an investigative skill and, are, and can be presumed to be good at it. Um, so the other part is that uh, your points uh, are, are hoarded and spent uh, in the course of the game, and that gives you a sort of a resource management. So if you roll a die, you add some number of, your, say, your firearms points to a, uh, to a die roll, and if you really want to hit, you add more firearms points, but th what that means is uh, when you get to the old mill and you fight the ghouls, now you've got relatively few firearms points and your chances to hit are back in the lap of the gods where they have been since St. Dave and St. Gary uh, gave us this ridiculous hobby in the first place. The gumshoe system sounds like uh, definitely pushes the story forward. Um, there's no there's no drawbacks in terms of like you've come across a dead end and you failed your role and now you're just stuck and the players have to figure out what they have to do next. I mean, the, the clues are found and then you, you continue on with the story. Is that right? Yeah, it's designed to be that sort of story forward. Robin thinks about games as narratives and always has. Um, he thinks about other things too, but for him, the narrative, the, the, the role-playing is a narrative art. And if no narrative is happening, then at some level, you're not doing everything you can at the table. So he always wants story to happen. And uh, Gumshoe... Again, like I say, it's optimized for that. It's not the perfect engine for everything. And there are genres where investigative uh, gaming is not the point. And so it would be kind of pointless to automatically succeed. But in uh, but if you're playing a game optimized for investigation, as old Call of Cthulhu often was, and as a game in which you're playing literal secret agents working for the government should be, then, yeah, I think it's a natural choice. I've noticed in a lot of your games, uh, almost, I think just about all of them have some kind of connection to actual historical or geographical settings, real-life ones, as opposed to fully like imaginary worlds and time periods. Is there something that draws you specifically to like factual human cultures or human history when designing or writing for your games? I mean, I've, I've been a history nut since forever. I'm just into it. But the fact of the matter is, Earth is more interesting than a made-up world. Uh, it just is. Um, more people have thought more cool things about it, done more weird stuff in it. Uh, they've Certainly the maps are better. Um, it, it's just a better source. And so anything you want to do at the table, someone has probably done, maybe without quite so many fireball spells in the real world, so why not set your game there? And it, as a creator as someone who's trying to get other people to play my games, what it does is it gives a possible buy-in. If I tell you this is a game about um, how Anathalos uh, uh, accidentally summoned a monster that ended the world, you're like, well, I don't care. I don't care about Anathalos, and I obviously don't care about his world. But if I say this is a game about how uh, Hitler accidentally summoned a monster that nearly ended the world, 
now you're interested. You're like, I did not know that happened. Tell me more. Tell me about this thing. I'm willing to believe it. Hitler's bad news. I'll bet he'd do that. And then you have Day After Ragnarok. And so I can set a, a Conan the Barbarian tribute in the American Midwest. And suddenly, as opposed to saying, ah, the ruined stones of, of Sethalos. You remember it was a great city a hundred years ago. You can say, ah, look, the ruins, the ruined stones of Tallahassee, Florida. And everyone's like, oh, I get that frisson that my character actually would get at seeing these ruined stones. It's part of my lived experience. It's something that I understand. Uh, maybe I'm lucky enough to be from Tallahassee and can really engage with these ruins. And that's, and that makes your, your, uh, your, your game at the table meteor as well, as, as well as also being uh, more accessible. And then I don't have to spend 50 pages explaining who an Athelos was when I can do one page explaining what on earth Hitler thought he was doing. So I wanted to ask you about the uh, the King in Yellow annotated edition. A lot of the guys on the podcast uh, have a copy and they're uh, they're blown away by the uh, the sheer beauty of the book, the artwork, the detail that went into it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this was a thing, and uh, Shane Ivey claims this was my idea. I don't remember it that way, but I'm willing to take credit because the end result was so good. But he um, uh, decided in his uh, genius that what the world needed, because Delta Green will uh, be having uh, Dennis's new big King and Yellow adventure uh, uh, come out at some point fairly soon, uh, that what the world also needed was a great edition of Robert W. Chambers' original collection, The King and Yellow. And he had Sam Araya, the amazing artist. Uh, uh, he'd already done a bunch of King and Yellow art that uh, I think Shane wanted to publish. And then he said but we also need to annotate the text. And because it's written in 1895, it has a bunch of illusions that people don't get. Uh, there's all kinds of things. Everyone's going to be asking, what does this have to do with Cthulhu? Lots of questions. So he approached me, or I approached him, depending on whose story we're, we're telling, uh, and said, would you like to annotate Robert W. Chambers? And I said, yes, because I'd love uh, that process. If I got to do anything for the rest of my life, it would be annotate um, uh, horror masterpieces. That's that's a great gig because it's all the fun of research and none of the fun of adding second paragraphs to things. So it's it's the best. Um, and I thought, well, how hard can it be? There's very little about Robert W. Chambers that anyone's ever done. You know, there's maybe two or three uh, articles, not even a book about uh, Chambers's art. So it, it'll be super easy to read everything about Robert W. Chambers. I'll, I'll bang out the annotations. Um, and I quoted him a price based on how little work I thought it was going to be. Well, it turned out it was more work than that because once you start digging, I discovered that the reason, the, the downside of no one having done any work is no one has done any work. So if I want to explain the black stars, I have to be literally the first person to figure out where Chambers might have gotten the idea for the black stars in the sky over Carcosa. And I think I did figure that out. I think it's from a Heinrich Heine novel, but... Finding that was, you know, that was just one thing that I had to do. So by the end of the process, I had, I, I am probably still the world's leading expert on Robert W. Chambers, uh, which is admittedly not a particularly uh, coveted honor, I guess, <laughs> uh, and was easier to attain than it should have been. Um, but I have read basically everything in English and some things in French about Robert W. Chambers. Um, and, uh, and that's all there is. Uh, he he uh, died 
um, his his son had, uh, uh, I think, uh, developmental problems and was an alcoholic. And so he let his dad's library go to hell. So we don't have his letters. They're scattered all over the country. I think if I, you know, had wanted to take the time to go to four or five different university collections, I probably could have read four or five more Robert W. Chambers letters that would have uh, uh, given me a little more insight. But as it is, um, uh, I, I got almost everything about Robert W. Chambers uh, that anyone knows into that book. And then, of course, not not six months afterwards, I find out that, oh, there's a, there's a painting by Robert W. Chambers that survived, and here it is. So... There's always more to learn, I guess, but it was a it was a great process, and you know you you uh, wind up you know sort of having a a big respect a bigger respect for Chambers than than even I did going in, just from the amount of uh, sort of uh, the the cultural influences that that went into him into into his work. It's just an interesting era, and he's an interesting guy. So for for listeners who may not be familiar, what is an annotated edition? An annotated edition is. Um, and uh, uh, Leslie Klinger has done them for uh, Dracula and for Lovecraft. Uh, there's a number of other annotated editions. There's a, lot, anna, a bunch of annotated Frankensteins came out for the Bicentennial. I think Leslie Klinger did another one of those. But it is basically um, where you have the source text, whatever it is, and then there are little footnotes, and usually they're in the margins on the side, but sometimes they're in the back. And so if H.P. Lovecraft uses a word... Uh, S.T. Joshi is helpfully there to explain what the word means and to say uh, he got this from Lord Dunzany or wherever it is that he got it. And uh, there are good and bad annotators, um, as there are of everything. But by and large, if you read Shakespeare in high school, uh, you almost certainly read an annotated edition because someone had to explain all the Elizabethan language down in footnotes at the bottom of the text. So this is just that, only for Robert W. Chambers instead of Shakespeare. So was there anything that, that surprised you as you uh, were preparing the annotation? I mean, a lot of it, like I said, was the surprise that no one had even bothered to ask some of these questions. Like, where did the black stars come from? That seems like a very specific image. Um, and uh, other things that sort of surprised me were the fact that the suicide booths, which I'd always thought of as just a crazy Robert W. Chambers brainwave. That was a big cultural moment. Um, people in newspapers were saying what we should have is a department of, of lethal mercy or whatever that would, um, uh, that, that would take care of people who are sad and have ex and, and take care of our, our inferior population. So it was all tied up with eugenics as well. But, um, uh, uh it was proposed to the government of Italy fund suicide parlors, uh, it's in a Maupassant story. It's in an Ignatius Donnelly novel from the era. So suicide booths are in the air. And I had really thought that that was just one of Chambers's, you know, brainwaves. But in fact, Chambers is in the 1890s reading all this stuff. And so when someone says, ah, maybe the future will have suicide booths, he's like, okay, my crazy future is going to have suicide booths because it's a crazy future and slots them into the repair of reputations. Yeah, I just realized that, you know, when I when I was a kid, I'd read, I think it was The City of Gold by John Carpenter, and it has suicide booze in it as well. So it's interesting that, that it goes back. Yeah. Um, that sort of thread runs through all the way back um, that far. Yeah, yeah. well, to, to at least the 1890s and, and possibly earlier. Where can listeners get a copy of the annotated King in Yellow uh, or the... Fall of Delta Green. Uh, Fall of Delta Green is available from anywhere you buy fine role-playing games. Uh, you can get it online. 
or order it, uh, you get your PDF or you can order it physically from Pelgrain Press. You can get it on uh, your drive-thrus and other platforms, get it from Amazon, get it from your game store, wherever it is you buy a game, that's where you can do it. Obviously, if you buy it from Pelgrain Press, they will love you best <laughs> because they will get to keep more of the money and then they can hire me to do more things. So I will, at a remove, love you best. Um, uh, the annotated uh, King in Yellow is, I think, exclusively available from Arcdream. I don't know that there is a secondary market, but you can go to shop.arcdream.com, I think is what the email or the www is. And uh, you go to the Arcdream online shop, they will happily sell it to you and uh, and ship it. Or you can get a PDF of it from uh, Arcdream or from DriveThru. But it's a gorgeous book. It's like uh, leather bound and it's got a gold foil yellow sign scarab on the front. And then Samaria's art is great on the computer, but it is amazing when it is just in front of your eyeballs. It's a gorgeous thing. And Simeon Cogswell did an amazing job with the book design as well. I should point that out. Yeah, yeah. The, the art, now that you mentioned Samurai's, uh, it's like almost fantasy, almost like fairy tale like. It's amazing. Yeah. He's very much inspired by the sort of symbolists that are, I don't think it's the symbolists that were around when Chambers was around, but I think there are symbolists who are inspired by those symbolists. So if you're into people like Odilon Redon, you're going to recognize some of the, uh, in, in, the, the, the influences on Sam's art. Um, and then uh, it's this sort of weird alchemical dream injury, dream imagery that really uh, fits with the, with the, with the source text with Chambers's stories. So you've been uh, you've been running Call of Cthulhu related games for for many many years now. What sort of advice would you give somebody who may be starting off in the hobby and is is looking to uh, to start running running games, whether it's Fall of Delta Green or just traditional Call of Cthulhu? I mean, the first thing that I would say, the sort of zeroth law, is that horror games writ large, whether it's Cthulhu or another kind, require buy in from players. Because what you are doing with horror games is you are drilling into an emotion and you cannot do that by accident. First of all, you shouldn't do that by accident. But second of all, you can't. If one person is at the table and they want to crack jokes or look at their phone or screw around, it does not work. It's like the one guy in the theater who's laughing during the scary part of the movie. It ruins it for everyone. So if you do not have buy-in, Trying it, at best, will get you to sort of Buffy the Vampire Slayer level of fun horror adventure, which can be great. And, you know, certainly you can play Call of Cthulhu that way. You can play uh, Vampire uh, that way. You can play Knights Black Agents that way. But I think for the real potential of the art form, uh, playing it, you know, for horror putting everyone in a place where they can respond and have agreed, yeah, I'm here to get scared is better. So if you can get that buy-in at the front, that solves so many other problems down the pike. And if you can't get it, then you won't you won't kill yourself trying, uh, which is just a savings of effort on your part, if nothing else. Then the second piece of advice I would say is that the most reliable uh, horror mechanism that everyone knows is the roller coaster. And if you... Uh, uh, imitate the roller coaster in your scenario structure with a slow clacking build up tick 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 as you the person are thinking man this is getting very high i don't think that this has been maintained in my lifetime i 
don't think that high school kid knows what to do if something goes wrong and and sort of panic yourself at all of the all of the uh, input that you're getting as tick 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 as it gets higher and higher and higher and then suddenly it lets go and you're plummeted down to your in to your certain death. And that is the moment generally where you reveal the big horror and then you have the fight scene that acts as the sort of uh, palate cleanser catalyzing catharsis and then you can start the roller coaster again. And that that very, very simple model works a treat. It works in slasher films. It works on roller coasters. It works at the gaming table. And you can vary it and change it up all you want once you're good at it, but it is an absolutely reliable structure and if you sort of aim your games for one or two uh roller coaster moments uh per session then you will be building a sort of a um uh, a structure of fun into the and a structure of sort of scariness into your horror game and that again if you're if you're uh, experienced and you're confident change it up do other things absolutely there's many other ways to scare people uh many of which I address in GURPS Horror 4th Edition, available wherever fine games are, stole, are sold. But um, but those are the are the sort of core techniques uh, of, 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 of running horror at the table. So uh, I recently found out that you you actually have a, a podcast with Robin Laws from... Uh, he's, he's the creator of the Gumshoe System, right? Yes, he is. Yeah, and so you guys have a podcast together. We do. It is Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. We have been running for... Um, goodness, seven years now. Uh, it's t- uh, so if you go to Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com or wherever you get your podcasts, your stitchers or your pod beans or whatnot, we're there. Uh, the new show drops every Friday. Uh, it's Robin and I talking. Uh, we generally open the show with the gaming hut in which we talk about specific, uh, possibilities and problems at the table and ways to deal with, uh, common things. And then we sort of expand it out. And so we might do the horror hut or the cinema hut or the television hut or the food hut or um, uh, the elliptony hut, which is all about the crazy stuff that I've been making my bones writing about. Uh, we go to Ken's time machine in which I go back in time and solve or make worse some historical event. Uh, the consulting occultist in which I divigate on some aspect of the occult for Robin and everyone else's delectation. And all of it, Generally with an eye, the Tradecraft Hut, where we talk about cool stuff in the world of spies, all of it with an eye towards making it usable at the table, because, of course, everything is usable at the table once you start thinking in that way. And I guess to the extent that we're doing anything besides entertaining ourselves with uh, the podcast, we are sort of trying to get you to think that way and to look at everything as grist for the mill of uh, tabletop games. Are there any other projects that you wanted to mention? Um, I am finishing out uh, tour, the second volume of my uh, Toured Lovecraft uh, series. I did Toured Lovecraft The Tales back in, I think, 2008. And uh, then kickstarted a little while ago. Uh, the backers are saying, perhaps a great while ago, Ken. A uh, expansion of that book and a sequel, uh, Toured Lovecraft The Destinations, where I look at all the... Uh, locations that Lovecraft's uh, uh, stories are set and and why he set them there and what he was trying to do with those locations. Um, Those will be re-released then when I'm done, uh, which will be very, very soon now. Uh, I had to take a break to write Vampire the Masquerade and people were very understanding, but I think they want their book. Um, And so I'm I'm finishing that and I'm starting a new uh, uh, game uh, book, Hellenistica, which is a D&D 5th edition compatible setting and the setting is 
the third century BC, the good parts version of the Hellenistic era with war elephants and griffins and flying triremes and uh, uh, colossuses of roads stamping around and everything amazing that was going on. Basically, Jason and the Ar Argonauts, uh, but with uh, many more hoplites and cat people. So it's a, it's a, it's set in the actual Earth, but it's the fantastic, wild actual Earth that people of the era kind of thought they were living in. And who's to say they were wrong? I mean, just because their resurrection magic never worked doesn't mean they weren't, um, uh, they weren't onto something. True. Is there a Kickstarter for that project? Uh, there will be, um, and it will be uh, beginning of next year, we hope, but maybe a little later than the beginning of next year. Much depends on how fast myself and my co-author, uh, John Harness, can get the words onto, pa onto paper. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us uh, today, Ken. Um, any parting words? Um, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft is a great writer, kids. Uh, read him. Know how he did what he did and why he did what he did and what he was doing. And your own horror output, whether it's at the table or in, in, in prose or in any other way, will be better. Uh, he was a, a legendary master of the craft. And just because no one writes like Nathaniel Hawthorne now doesn't mean that it's not worth reading someone who very much tried to write like Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1926. Very true. Well, worshippers, uh, that does it for today's episode of Beyond the Veil. I'm your innkeeper, Vase Odin, and today we had... I am uh, the man from Lang. I am the host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. All right. And thank you again, Kenneth. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to us for a moment. No, it was terrific. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. And we'll see you when the stars are right. Absolutely. <laughs>